Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode features Craig Moffitt of Moffitt Nathanson. Craig has joined the program in the past. It was about a year ago. The first episode was an overview of the history of telecom, and so think cable and wireless industry. First episode was sort of the background. This episode is an update on how Craig is is thinking about the sector. Charter and Comcast reported their earnings calls. The stocks did not react positively. Craig put out a note on Charter where his price target was largely unchanged. Anyone that knows anything about Craig knows how thoughtful he is. And I pinged him and I said, Craig, it looks to me like you're really doubling down at a time that the market disagrees with you. I'd love to have a conversation and update. Cable holds a special place in my heart. I currently do not own any shares. It almost feels bad to say it. That's a whole other issue. But as a podcaster, I've talked a lot about it and felt like I had to sell to get rational on it. I hope that this conversation is as unbiased as possible, and I hope that you all enjoy it. I enjoy talking to Craig, and I'm very grateful that he said yes to coming on, and I'm very proud to have a program that warrants a guest like Craig. This episode is sponsored by DeLupa. DeLupa has been very good to me. They are completely integral to my process, how I get up to speed on companies, my standard usage of that product is preparing for this interview, right? Like I downloaded every telecom company. I looked at how ARPUs have trended. So average revenue per user. I looked at how average revenue per account has trended. I looked at what broadband pricing was. You can get every single KPI that the company has disclosed for at least 10 years. I think it may only be 10 years. I cannot attest one way or the other. You can try the product and ask them this question. But either way, when I see a cell, I click on the cell. It takes me directly to the filing that the number that I'm reading comes from. It's either a footnote, a KPI. Sometimes something's disclosed in a company presentation and I can audit the source almost immediately. So I I think it's a great product. If you are an institutional investor, this is an institutional product. I urge you to please reach out to them. Tell them that the Business Brew sent you. It will help me. I hope their product can help you. I am in the lead gen business for them. They are in the sales business. I, I can only tell you to reach out and I think it's worth the time if it sounds like something that you're looking for, I would totally give them a look. Delupa is founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity into the investment process. Delupa offers an AI-driven single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation. Analysts spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel and more time synthesizing in the minutes after the print. Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Our data sheets include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. I think that's a little bit narrow. I don't know that I would focus as much on the minutes after the print stuff. I just think it's a good product. Anyway, as always, 
Nothing in this program is investment advice. Please consult your financial advisor before making financial decisions. This is all for entertainment purposes only. Do your own due diligence. Enjoy the episode. Enjoy the weekend. Thank you to Craig. Shout out to you, man. I appreciate you coming on. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, Craig Moffitt returns to the Business Brew. I am very excited to talk to Craig. It has been an eventful year, in at least in the stocks of all telecom, I think. Definitely cable has had an interesting time. And Craig appears as convicted as ever. So I'm curious to hear why and have this conversation. So thanks for joining. Yeah, I'm really happy to be back, Bill. Thank you very much for having me. And by the way, any feedback from last time on the the last one of these that you did? I mean, my, my group of listeners absolutely loved it. So I hope that you got as good a feedback as I did, because it was wonderful for the people that listen to me. Good. I'm glad. Yeah. So I pinged you because I read the charter earnings call. I listened to it, and I've had questions for a while about what's going on. And then I, I heard a rumor that your price target didn't change much and you reiterated your view. And I thought, man, I got to talk to Craig, if not now, when, right? Because <laughs> I think if memory serves me correctly, I think you said something about we're all going to find out if wireless churn actually happens now. And like, this is sort of the time that the thesis gets tested, I think. Is that a fair characterization? Uh, Bill, I think that's exactly right. So this is, I mean, let's take a step back and just sort of set the stage a little bit, which is that cable's coming off of two awful years, especially it's sort of really not perfectly calendarized, but starting around the middle of 21 through all of 22, Cable was in the doghouse in the investment community because broadband growth was slowing down and there were rampant fears that there were going to be either there was going to be a price war in broadband. And it was this list of horribles for all the terrible things that are going to happen to cable. And the cable story was kind of done. The missing piece of the narrative, it seemed to me, was wireless and that Cable was building something in wireless that I think most people were fairly dismissive of and saw wireless as this, it's just an MV, meaning they were renting capacity from Verizon. So probably a low margin business. The network is by definition can never be better than Verizon. So it was kind of a me too network with marginal contribution and yeah, they were getting some subscribers, but nobody was paying all that much attention. And we started to bang the drum a little bit saying, wait a second, this is a lot more than what you're giving it credit for being. The wireless business here isn't just an also ran wireless business. They actually have an argument that they will have cost advantage in wireless, which at first makes your head spin a little bit to imagine that a company that's essentially renting capacity from someone else could actually have a better cost structure than that someone else, right? Yeah, it doesn't, um, doesn't but, make a lot of uh, intuitive sense. That's right. But we said cable could actually have a cost advantage here in wireless. And believe it or not, their product quality in wireless, so the service quality, this again sort of makes you scratch your head intuitively, is better than Verizon's, which at first you say, well, how can it be better than the network that they're renting from? Yeah, how does that is. work? Uh, 
Well, it, the, the short answer, and we'll get into it more, I'm sure, over the course of the discussion today. What they do is they rent most of their traffic capacity from Verizon, but they put an awful lot of what they do over their own network. Now, today that's over Wi-Fi. Today, eventually it'll be over 5G equipment in the so-called CBRS band, which old timers like me remember, it's CBRS for CB radios. Remember kind of the <laughs> that 1970s craze? So that spectrum band and the, the traffic that they offload from their own network is actually runs actually faster even than Verizon's 5G network. So they, they test as a faster network with by definition, just as good coverage as Verizon and much, much cheaper, it just an enormous price advantage. And the price advantage is born of a real cost advantage that, that we can talk about in a little bit. And so we started to argue, this is a big deal. Cable is not just this kind of two-bit renter in the wireless business. They're actually going to be major forces in the wireless business. By the way, in a, in a way that the telephone companies I think will not end up being in the cable business that is in broadband, which I know is one of the things that we'll end up talking about quite a lot today too. So we said the convergent story that a lot of people have distilled down to a very simple soundbite, which is the cable operators are entering wireless and the wireless operators are entering broadband. And so it's a shit show for everybody and no one's going to win. And they all look the same is wrong on almost every single um, count and that the cable operators have enormous advantage in the convergence game. And so that led us to think that this is actually a pretty interesting time. And as you said in the setup, we're heading into now a real test where Charter, which had been offering an aggressively discounted wireless bundle with broadband, is now going to, for the first time, start to anniversary those early customer acquisitions and those prices will start to step up to something a little closer to normal. And we'll see whether those customers are willing to pay that higher price or leave. And spoiler alert, that higher price is still lower than the price you can get anywhere else in the market. So it's not obvious where they're going to go. And the early data suggests that they're going to stick around and that cable's really onto something here. Yeah, I... Th I have found myself getting a little bit victim to the, is this convergence war going to be mutually destructive to everybody? And one of the things that I have had difficulty processing is it looks to me, so one of the things that I like to look at is Charter's network expansion, the build-outs, or the Brownfield expansion, right? And I like to look at what the penetration rate, how many new customers per new passing charter is is acquiring just to get a sense of of what's going on and covid made the customer acquisition really accelerate and then on top of having a natural slowing of the customer acquisition because now penetration is full it looks to me like charter's algorithm slowed substantially when T-Mobile really entered fixed wireless and I think that also coincides with when some of these fiber builds started to come in. And you've got, when I read all the players, I've got cable saying, well, fixed, we've sort of morphed from fixed wireless isn't a real problem to now they're taking lower value customers. Then you've got wireless saying, well, cable's only taking the low value customers, right? They say, well, they're just kind of renting, they're buying the customers. And meanwhile, I'm scratching my head saying something here 
doesn't smell right, but I don't know what it is. And I don't <laughs> think anybody's being completely honest here. Yeah, well, that, look, that wouldn't be the first time. And everybody talks their own book, as you can imagine. Look, it, it, it is certainly true that fixed wireless and fiber are impacting the cable business. No one would argue otherwise. It is the case empirically that a lot of fixed wireless growth is coming from market expansion rather than market share gain. And that's interestingly in two areas. The fixed wireless subscriber growth has been disproportionately skewed to business. So Verizon reports that, T-Mobile doesn't, but it, there's an interesting take there because typical mix you would expect from just the, the number of, of broadband connections in the United States is something on the order of 90-10 residential business or cons consumer market, business market. At Verizon, it's more like 40-60 or it's 60-40, 60% uh, residential and 40% business. So call it a 4x over-indexing to the business market. It, that's a really interesting observation, by the way, because one of the real issues with fixed wireless and one of the reasons why we've concluded that, yes, it's certainly an issue for now, but it probably doesn't have terribly long legs to it, is the capacity challenge. And 10 years ago, it would have been the case that business customers used vastly more data than residential customers. So business uh, subscription was going to be much more taxing of the network than a residential subscription. Today, it's the other way around. Hmm. Um, the real no load on the network comes from video streaming and entertainment rather than business consumption. So it's actually much more cost effective for Verizon to serve business customers where they don't use as much data than it is to try to serve residential customers. Hmm. But it, it's also self-selection, right? There are lots of applications that Verizon is finding for business wireless, that is business wireless broadband, um, that you couldn't serve with a fixed connection, like construction trailers or food trucks, or uh, a year or so ago, it was COVID vehicles that are doing COVID tests on every corner in the city. Those kinds of applications where you can't run a wire to the vehicle tend to be actually pretty attractive applications. So it's not that they're not real, they're certainly real, but it's also they're not taking a pound of flesh out of cable because that's not a market that cable was in or ever was going to be in. So, so some of this is just recognizing that there's a little bit more coexistence than just a zero-sum game and that fixed wireless has grown the market. But obviously that's not entirely the case. They're still taking subscribers away from cable. Um, they're taking subscribers away from DSL, by the way, which has historically been a feeder stock for cable and losing some of that feeder stock hurts cable. And then the fiber expansion projects, the telcos are doing the same thing. They're taking some subscribers from cable. Again, the real test, the question there is not whether they're taking subscribers from cable, but are they taking more subscribers from cable than they were a year or two ago? And the answer is probably a little bit more because they've uh, expanded their footprints a little bit, but not quite as much as the narrative would have it. How much of the uh, I, I the bear argument to me would be well, one of the reasons that they're not taking as many customers is that there are fewer jump balls because fewer people are moving today. Do you think that carries any weight? 
Not really. Certainly every cable operator under the sun has said that, and it's become something that is almost a rote recitation on every single cable conference call. But it doesn't make sense to me. To the extent that cable is taking market share in those jump balls, then yes, more jump balls is Well, I'm actually uh, saying is, opposite. Is I'm asking the opposite, oh. right? Is, well, it, is it, it possible it, that their churn is so low because there are not the jump balls? Well, that's, that part is true, yes. The churn for the whole industry is low because there's less move activity and people tend to change broadband providers when they move. But that used to work in cable's favor. Cable was winning a lot more subscribers from DSL than it was losing to fiber. My guess is right now, just because the DSL base has been depleted, there's just not as many DSL customers left in the United States because they've been switching out of an obsolete technology relatively quickly. There's still tens of millions, but not at the same, certainly nowhere near the size or depth of the pool today that there was a couple of years ago. And so my guess is those lines have crossed and that the jump balls where cable is up against uh, fiber wins a little bit more of the time than cable. The jump balls where cable is up against DSL, cable wins more of the time than DSL, obviously. Um, but that eventually those lines cross and the, the low churn rate or low move rates go from being, um, or I should say, move activity goes from being a benefit to cable to being a neutral to cable to eventually being a negative for cable. We're probably around the range now where it's a neutral for cable and therefore you could dial up move activity or dial down move activity mm -hmm. or whatever, and it wouldn't make any difference. You're better off to have lower move activity because it just means there's less activity and therefore less cost associated with just churning things around for ultimately a net that's probably about neutral anyway. Hmm. That's interesting to hear you say that because I had shared a deck with you once upon a time and you said this is a good deck. It was a bearish case. And you said, I think where we may disagree is on the wireless economics. And I, I think it's interesting that even you, who I perceive to be one of the more bullish people on cable is saying, yes, at this point move is maybe neutral or, or could even move negative, And yet you still have a positive conclusion on cable. Well, yeah, look, I, I, again, I, I don't think anyone should have a bullish um, story on cable based on the idea that broadband net ads are going to reaccelerate. If that's what you're waiting for, find something else to invest in because you're making a mistake. Broadband net ads are not going to reaccelerate. I don't think they're going to fall through the floor. And you were mentioning before that Charter's rural build-out is supporting their net ads, and without it, they'd be essentially zero or maybe slightly below. That's essentially consensus. And if broadband were the only business that cable was in, it wouldn't be terribly interesting. Now, by the way, there was a corollary to that broadband net ads uh, are slowing down story that was, and as they slow down, because there's more competition, you're inevitably going to have a price war and therefore ARPU will fall through the floor as mm -hmm. well. That never made any sense. And remember, these are essentially you're going from what is something like a one player market. I hesitate to use the word monopoly, but you're going from a one player market to a two player market. Duopoly markets tend not to be brutal price wars anyway. But remember that's only in uh, people overgeneralize. And so they, if you conceptualize the cable business as going from 
one player markets to two player markets, that's a mistake. It's what percentage of the cable company is going from a one player market to a two player market. Yep. Historically, today it's something like 65% one player market and 35% two player markets and almost nothing three player markets. And the, there's a healthy debate about how much of the country will be overbuilt so that two player markets go from 35% of the country to what some people would say there was a time two years ago when the market, I think thought 70% of the country is going to be overbuilt by fiber. And you're going to have these duopoly markets in 70% of the country versus only 35 today. Our view was that's utterly insane that if you just look at the population density distribution of the United States by decile, yeah. you can't get to the seventh decile. Uh, Only makes sense to overbuild the dense parts, right? That's right. Yeah. You, you just, you can't get to the seventh decile in any conceivably viable financial model. So we said, it's not going to be that much of the country. Maybe it gets to 50, maybe it gets to 55, but it sure ain't going to get to 70. Yeah. And my guess is it probably peters out around 50, something like that, and, and maybe even a little shy of that. We'll see as the cost of capital has risen with interest rates. But so that's just one piece is just conceptualizing it as it's not all or nothing across the footprint. It's actually within a slice of the footprint. So what you're talking about is maybe another 25% of the footprint that is going to be competitive over the next five to 10 years. And within that, then the question is, what are the pricing, I guess, across the whole footprint? What are the pricing dynamics? The, the pricing dynamics in markets where you don't face a competitor, I think are pretty easy for people to understand. The pricing dynamics in markets where you faced a competitor for a reasonably long time, and therefore you've reached something like a stable equilibrium are also reasonably easy for people to understand. Those tend to be pretty um, rational duopoly pricing models. And then the question is just what's happening in, to pricing within that 25% that's going to be competed for. And it's really not all of it at once. It's say the part that has been um, overbuilt within the last four years, such that you're having the kind of the war for market share that typically happens over the first four years after a new entrant comes in, what happens to pricing in those models or in those markets? And, and even in those markets, what you find is that the pricing tends not to be particularly cutthroat. Now, why is that? Well, the biggest reason is if you're a fiber overbuilder and you built a fiber business model or business plan that was based on something close to 0% cost of capital, right? Let's say a 6% cost of capital two and a half years ago when you were making all of these plans and you assumed we're going to get to something like 50, 50 market share in the market eventually. So that's call it 40, 40%, 45% penetration. And I, and I have a cost of goods uh, or a cost of deployment, um, which is based on, I won't get too wonky, but is two elements. It's the cost per homes past and the cost per home connected. What's the wonkier um, answer? Well, just uh, that you can get really deep into the weeds of the cost per home yeah. past, for example, Okay. Uh, based on whether it's aerial or whether it's buried. And if it's buried, is it buried in dirt or is it buried in rock? And then what's the, the density along that route? And do you have to cross a highway or go underneath the highway in order to get to the other side of the highway to be able to pass those homes and all those kinds of questions that make the answer to what is the cost per home passed 
swing by one, two, three, four, five X, right? But let's say you had a, a you imagined that cost per home passed was going to be a thousand dollars. That's a reasonable ballpark where companies were operating in. And the population density, because you're pushing out into less and less attractive markets, is half what what it was before. So now that means the the cost per mile. Let's leave that alone for a second and then come back to that in a minute. The cost per mile stays the same, but the population density is half what it was. That means your cost per home pass just doubled, right? Now layer onto that. And oh, by the way, there is an enormous demand for construction crews of uh, trained installation labor for fiber. And I don't know where those people are coming from in a low unemployment market with relatively few trained people and 42 and a half billion dollars of Jobs Act bead money, as it's called, bead for the um, Broadband Equity and Deployment Fund, which is 42 and a half billion dollars going out to states, probably to be matched two to one by private. So you're talking about $150 billion of government subsidized broadband construction in rural markets. Think about that for a second. Think about that, what that does to an already overstretched labor market. Yeah. So, so now I have a labor market that is is going to to be stretched to the the gills, pushing the price of construction higher and higher. And I'm getting lower density, pushing the price of construction higher and higher. I can't change anything else in my model. I can't change my penetration. I can't change um, anything else. And my cost of capital, by the way, has gone up from 6% to 12, 13, 17% for some of these companies based on what they're borrowing at. You hope What's you borrowed one... long. You hope you borrowed yeah, long you hope, and you, fixed, you hope, right? Well, a lot of them haven't borrowed yet, yeah. right? A lot of them are still working their financing as they go. So then to so, your point, you so need to push so, ARPU because your penetration's right, low only, and you're going to need to refi or issue debt. Your debt holders exactly, are going to say, how's this all the, work? Only The only lever you've got to pull to try to make the numbers work is yeah. to raise ARPU faster. Especially if and people so, aren't moving as fast, right? Because it's not like you're it, getting right, the jump balls that you were longer, hoping for. It takes longer to get the market share. Yeah. So they're still getting the market share. Don't get me wrong. But they... but the ROI on the project doesn't work unless you get higher ARPU. And so that intuitively makes sense to people, but it was helpful for people to actually see the proof in the pudding when AT&T about, uh, I guess it's now three quarters ago, started reporting for the first time the fiber ARPU line item as a separate line item instead of lumping it together with all their DSL and all that sort of thing. And lo and behold, it turned out that AT&T's broadband ARPU or for fiber ARPU was rising at almost 9% a year. And so it became a lot easier for cable investors to get their head around the idea that, yeah, maybe this idea that we were going to have price wars in broadband was wrong. And the idea that cable can keep raising broadband ARPU by 4%, that looks a hell of a lot easier when your biggest competitor is raising broadband ARPU at, at 9 yeah, and I think that when AT&T comes out of conferences now and they lead with fiber and they talk about how fiber is a big part of their strategy, that can be scary for someone that, that is long cable to read without <laughs> yeah. going back to saying, okay, well, how does this actually work, right? That's right. And, and, and one more thing about this, just because I, wanna, I, I don't want to forget to talk about this. When you think about 
um, convergence, and 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 we'll talk about the convergence story in, in more broadly in, in a minute. It's easy to think about. Well, everybody's got a convergence story. Cable's got their convergence story as they offer wireless, and AT and T has their convergence story with their fiber, and Verizon's got fiber, and blah blah blah. That's simply not correct. AT and T has a wireline footprint. That covers about 42% of the United States. Of that, today about a third of it is fiber. Let's say eventually it gets to half fiber. So let's say they have a footprint that is, call it, eventually 21% of the country covered by fiber. How in God's name do you take a national wireless product? And try to sell it in a bundle with fiber, where you've only got fiber in 21% of the country, and you're going to say, "What our our, our fundamental product offer isn't available in 79% of the United States? You can't be a national player and do that." Verizon, that that number, the equivalent number is about 13% of the country where they've got fiber, so they can't do it. T-Mobile, the equivalent number is zero percent of the country, so they can't do it. Charter and Comcast. Can do it everywhere they are. Yeah, that is any customer that we can reach, we can offer them a bundle of fiber and and wireless, and no one else in the market can. I, I think the thing that I, I intuitively agree with you, and one of the things that has been confounding to me a little bit is T-Mobile. I'm in an area where you can get T-Mobile fixed wireless, but I read them talk and they say, okay, maybe three houses in my neighborhood get fixed wireless and then they have to shut down the additional, the incremental home, right? Because they don't want to overstretch the network. So how do you run a marketing campaign that's efficient when like, let's say I'm an almost acquired customer and then they shut down the offer and then I can't sign up. That seems really tough to me. And yet the numbers of fixed wireless ads just continue to chug along. Well, they do. Um, Bill, you're exactly right. It, it's sort of confounding um, what T-Mobile and, and by the way, what Verizon, uh, what they're both doing with fixed wireless because the product has a short runway. And T-Mobile has been very articulate about this in saying they said a year and a half ago, we think we have room on our network for about 8 million customers um, and then we're effectively done. They're now more than halfway there, they still say, we think we have room on our network for about 8 million customers, and then we're effectively done. And so it's a product with a relatively short runway. And let's do some numbers because I think it's really valuable to sort of just walk through the math of this product for a second and, and understand why it, it is, it's so confounding to try to figure out what's the play here and why are you doing this? First, the average smartphone user over the last decade has grown their usage by about a compound annual growth rate of about 35% a year or about 17 fold over the last 10 years. Today, they use about the CTIA set about 14 gigabytes of data. Uh, that's just the portion over the, the wireless network, by the way, it doesn't include any amount that gets offloaded. Okay. So that, that's not, Wi-Fi. that's not aggregate usage. That's only on that's the right. wireless the, network. The aggregate okay. usage is closer to 50 gigabytes. Um, most of that goes over Wi-Fi, but it's about 14 to today, call it maybe 17, uh, gigabytes going over the wireless network. 
Over that same period, you've had about a 60% growth in the number of connections. So the amount of traffic on the network has grown about 50-fold over the last 10 years. And that's a rough model for what you can expect going forward. There's no reason to change those assumptions. It's been doing that for a very long time. By the way, over that 50-fold increase in traffic, and, and particularly for the per device, the 17-fold increase in traffic per device, has been met with zero ARPU growth over that period, right? ARPU yeah. has been flat while usage has grown 17-fold. And not to cut you off, but coupled with massive purchases of Spectrum, right? So, so capital right? intensity going up, ARPU not moving. Yeah, which I think that's the, if you look up in, on Wikipedia, shitty business, that's, (laughs) well, this is the scary thing though. You don't want that to interfere with the good businesses, right? Well, yes, but it's, it, it is a tough business when usage on your network grows by 50 fold. And to put that CapEx in perspective, by the way. Over the last 10 years, AT&T and Verizon have spent $250 billion each on CapEx and Spectrum purchases. Add $132 billion at T-Mobile over the same period. And so I'm rough justice, $650 billion, $650 billion of capital investment. By the way, on networks that were ostensibly already finished 10 years ago when they started spending that money. So that's not for building new networks. That's just for the capacity upgrade in this business. Think about that for a second. Where And, and you've got no ARPU growth. That, by the way, I think is one of the big reasons why Verizon has been so aggressive in fixed wireless, because they spent $50 billion on C-band spectrum a couple of years ago, and there's no revenue story for it. And so they're desperate to say, we've got to find something that we can tell investors that justifies why we spent this money. There's got to be some revenue associated with it. Yeah. But so now get to broadband for a second. So a broadband customer uses on average about uh, 400 gigabytes of data per month. A video only, or sorry, a, a non-video broadband customer. So a broadband customer who gets their video via streaming only, which is increasingly the base case for the market as fewer and fewer people take legacy video. A streaming video customer is closer to 700 gigabytes of data per month. Hmm. So compare that to the 17 gigabytes of data for a wireless handset. And I'm roughly 41 times more data for an ARPU that is only about 20% higher, right? So, so call it a 40 to 40 to one or 30, 35 to 40 to one ratio of revenue per bit. That is that mobility generates about 35 or 40 times more revenue per bit than fixed does. So I would only do fixed if I just had an enormous amount of excess capacity such that I just couldn't figure out what to do with it. And so I'm, it's worth it for me to sell bits at one thirty-fifth of what I normally sell them for just to fill it up. But put that in perspective for a second, because if I just run the simple math of those seven to eight million customers on T-Mobile's network using uh, 700 gigabytes per month and growing that at about a 25% compound annual growth rate, which is where broadband home broadband usage has been growing. Then in 10 years, those customers alone will use 25 times more network capacity or network consumption 
than the entire T-Mobile customer base does today. So it's a 25 times load on the network versus today for an incremental 5% of, of revenue. Think about yeah, that's the network business for a second that says, I'm going to, I'm going to increase the load on my network 25 fold for 5% extra revenue. That's a crazy bet. Yeah. That's what, and that's by the way, I, I don't understand. And, 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 and Bill, just to finish it out, if I layer on the growing usage of mobility as well, that's another 19 times increase on the load in the network. So I'm looking at a 45 to 50 times increase on the network over the next 10 years between those two things together. Similar to what we had over the last 10 years, by the way, which is again, sort of where we've been for a long time in, in wireless. And I'm looking at 5% of that revenue coming from fixed. I just don't get why you would prioritize it. Yeah, that's what I've been trying to figure out is what incrementals, what incremental margins do you need to have to justify that kind of a choice from a business perspective? And why are they pricing it so low today? Well, the pricing is is a mystery because the incremental margins are straightforward. If it you're should not drop, adding, right? Well, no, I was going to say the incremental margins on that traffic are 100%. Huh. You're using it, you're using excess capacity for it. So it drops to the bottom line. So to be fair, it is a higher percentage of EBITDA. But the point you made is a, it, it, earlier is a really important one. How do I market that successfully in a way that I'm, because there is always some customer friction associated with the narrative that you described of you want fixed wireless. It's not available in your neighborhood right now. We'll put you on a waiting list. Oh, the waiting list is closed. You're no longer on the waiting list. We've shut it down entirely. We're reopening it. We have room for you. And meanwhile, you're trying to sell mobile customers on the notion that you have more capacity than anybody else. It seems like a sort of dissonant message to say, we don't have enough capacity for for any more fixed customers in your neighborhood, but don't worry, we have tons of capacity. I, I don't. That's. I, I don't understand why you take that marketing challenge on for what is ultimately a a relatively short runway product. And, and by the way, one that the market is not going to give you a, a particularly meaningful multiple for because there's no long-term growth story there. You run it for a few years and then it stops. So you wouldn't put a high multiple on it. So it, it, it's a little confounding, and I think it does get back to this convergence story that we talked about before. Because remember, T-Mobile is, is still essentially a subsidiary of Deutsche Telekom in Germany, their primary shareholder and the, the, a lot of important board seats. And convergence has played out quite differently in Europe than it has or will in the United States. Why do I say that? Well, partly because you don't have that mismatch between wireless and wireline footprints in Europe that you have in the United huh. States. In Europe, you have a national wireline footprint, but, but Telco, who is also a wireless operator in every market. So they can offer a national bundle of wireless and wireline, hmm. and they often do. And so if you're coming from a, a European perspective and you've seen this movie in Europe and you say, well, the world's going to go in the direction of convergence and we need to have an answer for convergence and our American subsidiary T-Mobile doesn't have an answer for convergence. Therefore, this becomes strategically very important as well. I really need to 
maintain an answer for convergence. It's still not an answer for convergence. If you can only do 8 million households and you're going to fill up to 8 million and then you can't do it anymore, you haven't answered anything. And by the way, I don't think that construction of we need an answer for convergence is actually the right way to think about it. Because let's again, back up a little bit. The converged offer of wireless and broadband together, Chris Winfrey at Charter likes to say, he thinks it's not just a discount that they're offering. It's an entirely new product category. It is that you're Do going we buy to- this? Do we buy no, this? No, we don't buy it. No, but of course you don't buy that, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I, look, you may turn out to be right and, and he can change customers' perceptions, but it's not gonna be easy. Customers today think about those two things as separate. And because of the way the apps environment has evolved on smartphones, it's almost impossible to imagine a functionality that you can only do with your smartphone or alternatively can only do with your broadband connection at home if you get both services from the same company. Um, it's just too easy to replicate it with an app that would then be platform agnostic. So look, there's a lot of smart people who have been trying for a long time to come up with something that makes the converged product unique to a company that is offering a converged mm. product. And nobody has been able to come up with anything yet. Not in Asia, not in Europe, not in Latin America, not in the United States. So today you don't have a product advantage, but what you do have, and it's very important, what you do have is a cost advantage. Yeah. Um, now that's different from a price advantage, by the way, you can price it lower or higher if you want to. And that's a, that's a marketing decision, but is the underlying cost of offering the second service lower because you're in the business of offering the first service for wireless offering fiber. The answer is no. The underlying cost is not cheaper. It's more or less the same to run fiber to a new neighborhood and across a new household. If you're a wireless operator as it would be if you're a private equity company doing the same thing. There's no real cost advantage. For cable, on the other hand, there is a very large cost advantage in offering wireless because of that traffic offload that I talked about. So I can lower my costs in wireless quite substantially by virtue of the fact that I have a cable network. And therefore, I can offer a customer a bundle of broadband and wireless at a lower price than, the, than anyone else can. Now, if I'm T-Mobile, I look at that and I say, okay, there's no product advantage. So the good news is I'm not sort of simply foreclosed from this market because I can't offer a competitive product. What it does mean though, is I'm going to have to offer a cheaper product in order to be competitive, right? I may not want to, but the economics says you're not going to have a choice. Um, the market is going to demand that you, in order to be able to compete with a converged product you're going to have to lower the price of wireless. That's the fundamental problem that the market faces right now, which is cable is pricing wireless way below the big three. And why are they doing it? Because they can, because they have a cost structure that allows them to offer it at very low prices and still be quite profitable. Now the, the phone companies have very low marginal costs. The marginal cost of offering wireless is virtually zero, right? You're running electrons over the air. It's extremely low marginal cost, but the total cost is very high. The total cost of building the network, maintaining the network, customer service re repair and all that sort of thing. And the subsidies for attracting customers and what have you. 
Where cable has a unique advantage is they can arbitrage the cost structure of the wireless operators in a really profound way. And it's something that I, I don't think the investment community has gotten their heads around yet, which is there's this legacy history in wireless of, just like in every telecom market, by the way, of enormous subsidization of rural markets by urban markets, because it's cheap to offer service in urban markets where density is high, and it's really expensive to offer uh, service in rural markets where density is low. But politically, it would never be possible to charge way more in rural areas than urban areas. And so you've done what they call, refer to as postalizing rates, which is the same way the post office charges the same rate for delivering across town in New York City as they do from going from uh, rural Maine to rural California, which think about what a crazy idea that is in terms of economics. <laughs> and it doesn't make a lot um, of sense, but we all but, benefit. So let's keep But we going. all benefit. And, and it was a political decision made yeah. 200 years ago. And it informs the way we run lots of businesses in the United States for political rather than economic reasons. And so that is an unshakable expectation in telecom that you're going to have roughly flat pricing, rural versus urban for wireless. Cable comes along and says, okay, I'm going to strike a wholesale deal. And by implication, that wholesale deal is priced on a per minute basis for voice, or more importantly, on a per gigabyte basis for data, which is based on the mean average cost of the entire country. But now I'm going to start to arbitrage that because I'm going to say, all right, well, now I'm going to, huh. I'm going to use that mean average cost service from you in all the places where the cost of cost. providing that service is really high and then I'm going to offload <laughs> and, it and I'm going to offload it in all the places where the cost is really low. Yeah. And so I will, and the statistic that blows you away in this market is what Comcast and charter have now both cited that 3% of the square footage or the square mileage of their footprint generates 60% of the traffic. Yeah. Imagine that for a second, right? That's roughly a 30 to one ratio in 60, 40. That is 30 times higher cost in 40% of the network than in the, for 40% of the traffic than 60% of the traffic. And so what's cable going to do? They're going to say, I'm going to take 60% of the traffic for myself at only 3% of the costs. And I'm going to leave 40% of the revenue in this case to Verizon for 97% of the cost. That's a terrible business model for wireless, but it's a great business model for cable. And so cable comes out of this with a cost structure that is actually lower total cost than the network they ride on. Why? Because they're arbitraging this enormous gulf between urban and rural. And if T-Mobile wanted to create something similar, which they can't, but if they wanted to, they, they I think... I've been listening to them talk about how they're trying to approach fiber relationships. If you were their business development team, you'd almost have to say, okay, we think our brand can drive customers to your network. So we want to offload and, or get some sort of kickback or some economics from your relationship. But even if they could do that, they can only do it in select areas and they have to go out and do a bunch of patchwork agreements. Right. And they, and that, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, so Let's start with a couple of sort of baseline assumptions. You can't merge with cable. The DOJ and the FCC are never going to allow T 
T-Mobile to merge with Charter or Comcast, or obviously AT&T or Verizon to merge with Charter or Comcast. So they, they compete with each other across technology platforms today. And so those are non-starters from a regulatory perspective. And you're obviously not going to let T-Mobile acquire or be acquired by AT&T, and you're not going to let it acquire or be acquired by Verizon. So if I think about the wireline footprint that's available to T-Mobile, it's not cables, it's not Verizon's, or it's not AT&T's. So what's left is 30% of the country, all, very little of which, by the way, is overbuilt with fiber. So let's say 25% of that is overbuilt by fiber. So there's six or 7% of the country that I can play for. I would have to buy frontier would bring me what 4% of the United States, um, with a fiber footprint. What in God's name would I do with 4% of the country covered with fiber? There's no business strategy in that. None. There's no business strategy in, in buying lumens fiber footprint. Again, just too small to make a difference. I can, sure, I can lend my brand name to private equity companies that are building fiber networks in some town that, that you've never heard of and couldn't pronounce. But again, that, that, and, and maybe I can get paid for that and that's fine. It's incremental revenue. I might as well pick up some pennies off the floor, I guess, but it is non-strategic. It is never going to be, there is simply no path to putting together a sufficiently scaled wireline footprint that I'm never going to be able to offer the bundle. But again, let's go back to basic principles. Since there's no cost advantage in me as a wireless operator building fiber anyway, there's no real cost advantage in me offering a bundle. So it doesn't really solve any problem that I've got anyway. What I'm really trying to do is say, I hate the idea of having to lower my prices, but guess what? Every business in the world that has to lower its prices hates the idea of lowering its prices. It's no fun to lower prices, but that's one of the reasons why I've been so cautious on the wireless operators lately is there's this narrative that, that pricing is starting to firm in the wireless business and that years of sort of crappy ARPU um, not growing will finally start to change and you'll start to get a little bit better pass through of pricing. And if so, then Verizon and AT&T look really cheap and T-Mobile on other dimensions already looks cheap. But if you don't believe that there's going to be pricing growth in wireless, then that whole story falls apart. And I don't look at this picture and say, I can believe there's pricing growth. Can there be pricing growth for a quarter? Sure. But if you come back three years from now, is the pricing mark is pricing pressure in wireless going to be greater than it is today or less than it is today? It's going to be greater than it is today. Why? Because cable is priced at 30 to 40% below the, the market and they're getting bigger and bigger and louder and louder. And the industry as a whole is eventually going to have to respond to the fact that cable, look, cable today takes between 60 and 90% and of the industry net ads. All the growth is going to cable. Yeah, that's what Why? I think. Because it turns out customers like a lower price. That's what I think is crazy. <laughs> when you read the from the conferences, I don't know if it was Verizon or T-Mobile, but they said something along the lines of wireless decisions are not being made on price anymore. They're being made on sub device subsidies. 
and I just look at the cable net ads and I say, how can you say that with a straight face? Because it's pretty clear. I mean, in my mind, it's a discount, right? But consumers are choosing that. That's right. Well, and, and by the way, both things can be true. There are segments of the market that make their decisions based on the service plan price. There are segments of the market that base their decision based largely on the handset subsidy. And then there are probably very small segments that actually think about the math of those two things together and try to figure out. <laughs> it's 0.5% sure. of the population. Yes, that's, that's right. That's, a very, that's the very small people, the people who are listening to your podcast and no others probably. Those things can be true. Both of those things can be true that, that people are thinking about the, the cost of the network in, in that way. But yeah, the, the evidence is pretty clear. Cable is taking the, the bulk of industry net ads. Now, what Verizon is saying is true too, that the bulk of industry gross ads are still competed for the old way with subsidies. And But by the way, don't expect that Comcast and Charter aren't going to be playing that game too. Comcast is already offering subsidies. We just did a report for our subscribers just yesterday about who won Black Friday using some proprietary data to show who's, who was offering the largest handset subsidies in Black Friday weekend on which devices and what have you. It gets to be wildly complicated, as you can imagine, because there's literally millions of combinations of from and to and the device you're trading in, what you're getting back for it and the plan you're selecting and what have you. And so we work with a company called Navi to do that. And, and one of the interesting takeaways is Two years ago, cable was not in the subsidy game at all. They just didn't show up on Black Friday weekend. Hmm. Last year, they were sort of a toe in the water. Um, Comcast was offering subsidies, but not nearly big enough to really move the needle compared to the subsidies of a Verizon or an AT&T or T-Mobile. Today, they're still not as, the subsidies aren't as rich, but they're starting to get into the ballpark. And because the service plan is lower, Comcast is actually offering customers a pretty good deal. Charter isn't offering meaningful subsidies yet because their service plan is so low um, that they feel like they don't have to, but they're fully cognizant of the fact that um, eventually those customers are going to want new devices and, and for the segment of the market that feels strongly that they make their decision based on device subsidies. And again, there is a big segment of the market. They'll probably introduce a different plan that is higher priced than their plan today, but more subsidies includes subsidies, but still lower priced than anything you can get from Verizon, AT&T or T-Mobile. And that's not a terribly hard thing for them to do. And they've said before, they'll just preserve the customer lifetime value and make themselves roughly indifferent between which of the two plans a customer wants to take. Not a hard thing to do, but a really hard thing to compete with. The one real hiccup that I think cable has is I have Comcast mobile and Comcast broadband, and it's so clear that it's two separate companies. I can't call the normal Xfinity number and make any changes to my mobile without getting transferred to a completely different department. Like they got to figure that out. I agree. No one said the execution has been flawless at either company, but remember this is still pretty early days and it's early days also in the offload strategy that they haven't even started to do the CBRS offload. I think a lot of people in the investment community have been frustrated about what's taking so long, but the first you had to wait for the silicon to be developed for the equipment vendor community. 
once the silicon was developed, then you needed to have the actual chassis of the strand-mounted small cells for the offload to be built, manufactured in enough numbers that they could then be tested in the network. Then you go through this six month to a year long process where you install them in markets where you test to make sure that they aren't having any kind of deleterious effect on any other network element of which there are hundreds, right? So uh, unforeseen interactions with everything from taps to hubs to uh, set top boxes and things, right? So you go through all that network certification before you can finally say, all right, now we are at last ready to say, this equipment is certified and ready for rollout. We just got to that point three months ago. And so Mm. we're at the very front edge of, and now they start to roll out CBRS strand mounted small cells to start to take their cost leg, cost structure, the next leg down and get even more aggressive and competitive in this market. So it, it is a very ominous circumstance, I think, for the wireless operators to have players the size of Comcast and Charter with a decided overall cost advantage in entering their market. It's it's funny because if you go back to the merger of Sprint and T-Mobile and the goal of the FCC and the DOJ in trying to prop up DISH and saying we need DISH to be the fourth competitor in the market because otherwise the wireless market will be too concentrated and blah, blah, blah. They completely overlooked the cable operators. Dish has been an abject failure from a policy perspective. It's been sort of a failed wireless business in a lot more ways than just policy. But as a policy of creating Dish as the fourth player has been a complete flop. But the cable operators have emerged as a much more potent force than Dish was ever going to be. Using Verizon's own network. I, which is all the, all the more ironic. Right? Which Dish, I think, uses T-Mobile and AT&T for a little while, right? I think they've got like That's seven right. years or so. Well, it, it, I, well I guess five now had, or whatever. They had so. Well, they, had, they only have a few years left on T-Mobile, but AT&T gave them a much longer contract, so they can roll onto AT&T's network. The, the challenge is... The burden on DISH to build facilities in order to satisfy the FCC's build-out requirements required that they actually do an awful lot of network construction and bear a lot of recurring costs that goes along with that, tower lease agreements and backhaul and, and all that sort of thing. And that unfortunately means that their cost structure, until they get to scale, just isn't going to be anything near as attractive as cables. And it doesn't look like they have the financing runway to be able to ever get to scale. So that looks to us like that is now an imminent bankruptcy. So when one of the questions that I have about the whole ecosystem is when you have a wireless, what incremental margins are roughly 70, 75%, if cable starts taking these customers from wireless, what kind of poison does that introduced to the water. And I think this goes to your point on why you're so cautious on the wireless companies, but what kind of potential competitive dynamics does that create for everybody? Like, can the whole ecosystem get poisoned temporarily? Sure. Well, more than just temporarily, right? I mean, I think one of the challenges facing the wireless industry today is is that just as you described it in broadband, where we're coming out of the pandemic, we had this, or during the pandemic, we had very rapid subscriber growth. 
Same thing happened in wireless. We had really rapid subscriber growth in wireless during the pandemic. And it is now abating and it's still way above population growth rate, which is a little bit of a head scratcher because wireless is fully penetrated. So what you're getting is, is more lines per person, not necessarily that people are walking around with two handsets. That's actually getting to be less common unless you're a full-time Uber driver, you probably have consolidated your business and, and personal device onto one instead of two. But there's all these promotions that give you an incentive to take two devices, even if you're not going to use it to get buy one, get one free, uh, and then take an extra line so that they can report that they had better line growth. All that's kind of trending back down gradually, admittedly, but trending back down toward population growth rate again, as some of the froth comes out of that market, it's hard. It's really hard mathematically to sustain that growth. Um, it has to keep accelerating in order to maintain growth meaningfully above population growth rate. So if, if it stays constant, then you fall back down to population growth rate, just on a bigger pie. So, so it, the growth rate is slowing down and cable is taking a higher and higher share for the last year and a half or so it has fortuitously for the wireless operators been fairly evenly shouldered by all three. Um, all of them have slowed down about the same amount so that it hasn't really been a calamity for any one of them. It didn't have to be uh, that way. That makes and sense. And it doesn't have to be that way going forward. So either. you don't have uh, one relatively desperate competitor yet. You're exactly. all sort of getting hit equally. Exactly right. But, hmm. but give it time and odds and probabilities tell you that ultimately you can't sustain a a gentle, comfortable equilibrium like we've had for very long. And that ultimately it will fall disproportionately on one and they will have to do something aggressive in order to fix it. And that destabilizes everybody. Yeah. And I would say it has been luck rather than skill that it hasn't actually already happened. Hmm. Interesting. Were there similar arguments when 2G and 3G came out? Like, is this the same stuff recycled every I don't know, decade or whatever, or is this new? Well, it's new in two ways. One is the bill for 5G was much higher than the bill for 4G, which was much higher than the bill for 3G. 3G came along and the promise of 3G was everybody is now going to start to use data with their device. And it didn't really happen and 3G was billed as a failure because it cost a lot of money and the data market didn't really take off. 4G came along and it was even more expensive, but the data market did take off. And that was when you had this massive explosion in both apps that used data for the first time. You had video consumption for the first time. And not coincidentally, it was right around the time that Apple introduced the first iPhone. That was the first iPhone really came along late in the days of 3G at the very beginning of 4G. Yeah, I remember having a 3G um, iPhone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and so you, you had smartphones that you had the opportunity to increase people's pricing. And there really was some increased ARPU during that period of 2007 to 2011 or so as people upgraded to smartphones for the first time. So in that sense, the 4G cycle, even though it was much more expensive than th the 3G cycle, was much more successful than the 3G cycle. 
the 5G cycle has looked a lot more like the 3G cycle, even more expensive and no incremental revenue. Hmm. And that's been very, very challenging. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I look forward. I hope we continue to have these conversations because I find this to be fascinating. I think we're at a really interesting point in you coming out and saying, I'm sticking to my convictions now. I look forward to talking to you in a year or two and seeing how it all plays out. I look forward to that too, Bill. Before I let you go, man, can you pitch your own service a little bit and tell people what they can expect from subbing to you? And do you have conversations like this? And if I can sneak in kind of a gossipy one, what was it like leaving SVB and how was that? But uh, <laughs> we'll start with the business and then you can decide. Yeah, so first, expand. well, let me go back 10 years for now 11 years when we decided to start Moffat Nathanson, Michael Nathanson and I had, and, and three other partners that we had, had worked with at Sanford Bernstein had conviction that the market would pay for really differentiated research and that pure research was something that uh, should be paid for. It sounds sort of obvious, but at the time, that's <laughs> not really the model that, that most research operated by. Uh, most research in, is provided, or the model is sort of set by the bulge bracket banks that essentially give it away in return for trading activity and stuff like that. So we thought it would work and it turned out it did. And the thesis was that we would make the research process transparent and share it with our clients that if instead of me calling an industry expert to ask them um, umpteen questions about whether it's network construction or whatever, we'll invite clients to join us for those kinds of calls. And so they are our partners in understanding everything about the media communications universe. The published research is a part of it. We have a subscription only tier that where customers subscribe to be on our mailing list and read all the research. And we have also have a tier where clients can interact with us um, at, a, at a much more complete level and talk to us with regularity and that sort of thing. And then, by the way, we also have lots of uh, conferences and events and that sort of thing that our subscribers get to go to. For the second part of your, and, and I guess if anybody wants to reach out, you can send me an email or you can go to our website and, and there you can find a way to contact us there to talk about getting a subscription. As for what it was like leaving SVB, I think we were incredibly fortunate uh, to have avoided some fairly obvious landmines or what obviously could have been landmines. We were only there for a year or so and hadn't therefore gotten so fully integrated that when SVB went bankrupt, it, it was all that difficult to disentangle what we had. We, we still had largely our own, everything from compliance to technology platforms, to all that sort of thing, mm. to be able to, to unwind it fairly neatly and cleanly. And so it, it certainly had its share of headaches, um, being owned by, uh, a bankrupt company. I won't go into too much detail about the structure, but there was Silicon Valley bank. We were actually owned by the holding company that also owned Silicon Valley bank, but that holding company went bankrupt. The bank underneath went bankrupt. But we, and that middle layer in between, were not bankrupt. So, hmm. so it, was a, it was a little complicated, but everything has worked out well, knock wood. And we have back what actually we really enjoyed and what I think worked well for us, which was the independence to be able to focus entirely on best-in-class research. 
Well, I know you did when you were there, too. I wanted to ping you while it was going on, and I said, I think Craig's probably got bigger things going on than my email. But I was thinking of you, and I'm glad that it sounds like the transition has gone well and you're back and independent. And I really appreciate you stopping by and having this conversation with me. Love to do it, Bill. All right. We'll be happy to come back anytime. All right. Sounds good, Craig. Take care of yourself. All right. All right. Bye.